You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This week you'll hear the conversation that I had with Catherine Coniglio. Catherine is the Clinical Research Coordinator at the Eating Disorders Clinical and Research Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. And I was interested to talk to her about a paper that's been published recently. And that paper was titled, Won't Stop or Can't Stop? Question mark. Food restriction as a habitual behavior among individuals with anorexia nervosa or atypical anorexia nervosa. There seems to be a lot more research coming out right now, and maybe I'm just paying attention to it more, but I think there's more research coming out now that looks at anorexia nervosa um, and doesn't really psychologize it as much, but looks at the behaviors and explores the behaviors and explores whether those behaviors are really intentional as possibly they have been uh, rumored to be, or maybe not so much. Hmm. And so I let Catherine talk about the research because that's what she does best. And the first question that I asked Catherine, as I ask everybody, was to tell us a little bit about herself. Here's Catherine. So I'm a clinical research coordinator at the Eating Disorders Clinical and Research Program at Massachusetts General Hospital um, under Drs. Cameron Eddy and Jennifer Thomas. And actually, in the fall, I'll be starting a clinical psychology PhD program at Rutgers University um, under the mentorship of Dr. Eddie Selby. So I'm a coordinator now, and I'm sort of um, just starting off in the field of wanting to become sort of involved in both uh, clinical work and research in the field of eating disorders. And what made you be interested in the field of eating disorders? Sure. So... um, so I actually was a swimmer in college, and there are certain sports where eating disorders are a bit more prevalent just because, um, you know, they sort of involve a uh, the way that you look is often is sort of put on display. And in swimming, that's true because, you know, you're in a bathing suit. And so um, a lot of my teammates would sort of make comments about their shape and weight and how that was affecting their performance. And I just got really interested in this idea that, you know, what could be potentially a good thing and sort of wanting to be a better athlete could then transition into this, you know, developing an eating disorder. And so that's sort of where I started my interest and then, you know, working here and just understanding. I do, um, I am the intake coordinator and I also am involved in research projects. So just sort of getting to see both sides of um, understanding better ways to, to treat these patients and then also just really getting to, to meet them and sort of meet them where they're at and watch them and their progress of recovery is just been so rewarding. Mm-hmm. So the um, I was interested in the research that, and it's a paper that I found that was titled um, "Won't Stop or Can't Stop: Food Restriction as Habitual Behavior Among Individuals with Anorexia Nervosa or Atypical Anorexia Nervosa." So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about that paper. Sure. So, um, so the idea for the paper really stemmed from this idea actually originating from Dr. Timothy Walsh and his team at Columbia University that, you know, perhaps one reason why anorexia nervosa is so persistent is because 
food restrictions, so the act of sort of restricting your calorie intake throughout the day, transitions from becoming a purposeful behavior to becoming more of a habit. And so just to kind of set the stage a little bit, if you think about operant versus classical conditioning, operant conditioning means reward-based conditioning. So behaviors are maintained through the presence of rewards. And in this case, or in the case of food restriction, rather, the rewards, it might be, you know, compliments from family or friends following weight loss or boost in self-esteem, which then leads to doing more of the food restriction and more compliments and rewards. And the cycle sort of goes on and on. Um, Classical conditioning, on the other hand, is sort of the famous Pavlov's dogs experiment where um, the behavior, so again, in this case, restriction, is maintained automatically, perhaps even outside the person's kind of conscious awareness. Um, and so there's some cue in the environment that's prompting the behavior and it becomes a habit. And so the idea of this paper is that we wanted to test whether that was really true. Um, in other words, whether food restriction really does become a habit, um, for some folks. And so, as you mentioned in the title, an important strength of this paper, I think, is that we tested this in individuals both with anorexia nervosa and with atypical anorexia nervosa, which um, for folks who don't know is a type of other specified feeding or eating disorder, which basically in lay terms is um, people who sort of are experiencing the symptoms of anorexia nervosa, but who perhaps aren't of a low weight um, because certainly, you know, we know that individuals can be struggling with food restriction regardless of whether they're considered to be underweight. We had individuals who are coming in uh, to the clinic for an, an appointment at an outpatient eating disorders clinic um, and we had them complete sort of a battery of questionnaires prior to their first appointment um, and I won't get into the methods too much, but just if people are interested, the way that we measured how strong um, a habit, how, how strong of a habit food restriction was, was by using the self-report habit index, which is a self-report measure of any habit. You sort of can um, use it to measure how strong any habit is. And so in this case, we used food restriction. Um, and it asks questions like, you know, food restriction is something that I do automatically or something that I do without thinking or it feels like it's typically me, things like that. Um, and so we found that it actually wasn't their effortful restraint. So it wasn't the operant conditioning piece that I spoke about before that predicted their food restriction, but rather it was how strong the habit was. So how how strong of a habit food restriction was that predicted whether they would actually restrict their food. So in some, it's, it's really not that these folks are actively trying to engage. Um, it's not that they're actively trying to eat less. It's just that it's sort of become such a habit for them that it's really hard to stop. Yes. And um, that would also explain why for some of us, it's, it's a lot of work to eat more. It's, it's easy to keep eating the small amount when you're in the illness and trying to recover it's easy to keep eating the small amount it's eating more that creates a massive amount of anxiety and stress yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. And I hear that, you know, on um, when I do intakes with patients, if people are have been well into recovery and sort of just are on the brink of being able to call themselves fully recovered, they might say things like, you know, I really am trying to follow my meal plan and, and eat what, you know, my team is wanting me to, but it just... I don't even realize it. And then I've gone the whole day and I haven't eaten anything at all. And it wasn't because I was trying. It was just, it wasn't, I didn't have the brain space to actively focus on eating, you know, everything that I'm supposed to. And things, I think another thing that comes into it is many of us, when we're very underweight, we don't sleep. And then, so we, we don't have, we're so tired. We don't really have the resources to push ourselves to the extent that we need to push ourselves to get out of the the habits or of low low intake yeah and, and it's interesting that you say that about sleep because you know habits are sort of our brains way of compartmentalizing routine behaviors and so in the same way that you don't have to think about breathing or blinking you know, if you are low on brain space then behaviors sort of become um become more habitual more easily so um certainly people who are tired or undernourished are going to be more susceptible to developing those habits yeah and so is there any insight why um for example i found it very easy when i was sick to develop a habit that led to greater restriction however a lot of work to develop a habit that went against energy deficit and led towards eating more food so the the habit forming didn't seem equal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. And if you think about it, I mean, the habit to engage in food restriction was probably developed over the course of a very long time. And then if you compare that with, you know, trying to develop a habit to sort of reverse the original habit, it, it may take, um, you know, just more effort to try to do it in a shorter amount of time because the habit did didn't just develop overnight it developed you know over years and years presumably and so I mean if you think about people who are trying to break any habit whether it's say nail biting for example um what you what the habit literature would suggest is helpful is to sort of first bring it to your awareness so if you think about people biting their nails they're they're not saying hmm now seems like a good time to bite my nail there's they don't even realize they're doing it until their fingers are already in their mouth and so um trying to realize that this is something that you're doing sort of brings it out of the realm of being a habit and into sort of your conscious awareness and then developing a competing response so something that makes it virtually impossible to do what it is that you're trying to break. So to go back to the nail biting example, as soon as they notice the cues that would trigger a nail biting episode, they might squeeze a stress ball or or do something that makes it impossible to engage in the behavior. And so um, food restriction is tricky because it's basically the absence of a behavior and it can refer to a wide range of things, but that's sort of the general process that might be helpful um, in order to break, break the habit. Yeah, it's interesting. It is the absence of the behavior, but it doesn't feel like the absence of the behavior. Right. It actually feels like a, a an active behavior to mm-hmm. to restrict food, um, or it did for me anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But so, um, did you notice any difference, or did did you even have the opportunity to see if the length of which a person had had the illness made a difference? 
So we actually did look at that and we hypothesized that the strength of the habit would correlate with illness duration, meaning that we thought that individuals who have had an eating disorder for a longer amount of time would have an even stronger food restriction habit than, than individuals who have been ill for a shorter amount of time. But actually we found that it wasn't. And so um, what we make of that is that perhaps the habit sets sets in in quotes, um, you know, much earlier in in the course of the disorder than we thought. So that that transition that I was talking about earlier from operant to classical conditioning might be might might be happening much sooner than we than we thought. Yeah, um, because um, I was an adult onset, and I also work with adults with eating disorders, and. What um, I felt and a lot of people say to me is that we might start doing something and so even if it's the addition of something, so if, if it's a movement or exercise, when when, we, when first, first doing it, maybe even the first day, we do get positive feedback from the eating disorder about it or it feels good. But very quickly that will then set in to be a habit which doesn't generate that positive feedback. It just suddenly becomes, this is what I now have to do every day, rather than it makes me feel good. It's just a, this is what I have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that pattern that you described is something that I, I think the next step for the paper that I would like to do is sort of to look longitudinally and see, you know, when, when does that shift happen? Is it that, you know, it, I mean, I'm sure it's, person specific and you know even perhaps disorder specific but at what point and and what are the circumstances around that that shift from what you've just described your patients sometimes say and that you know oh I'm getting all these compliments or I'm feeling really good about myself too oh and this is now just a habit and it's it's me and this is sort of what I do mm-hmm. yeah but to be clear, I don't. I don't have patients. I'm not a doctor, uh, but clients. I work. I work as a. I work as a recovery coach. So, but um, for me, and this is it personally again, because I would do something one day and it would feel good, and I get a positive. You know, usually that would be the anorexia, make it feeling good. Oh, you know, you ate less. That's great. You know, clap, clap. Well done. Um, and it would be as quick as the next day. I would have to match the less that I ate not to feel good, but to feel normal, because going back to two days ago intake would feel negative. So it wasn't that I'd feel good from, you know, that's how quickly it would set in with me that I wouldn't then um, match that reduced intake because it felt good like it had the day before, but it would just be to maintain, um, you know, sort of even and not feel negative, (laughs) which is a really annoying factor of the illness. Right. And it, and it just really speaks to what you were talking about earlier and that developing the competing habit in order to achieve recovery can be really challenging. And, and that's what we're hoping our findings are really validating for these individuals who are, are working so hard towards recovery. And, um, you know, our, our data show that, that actually they are working really hard and, and it just sort of speaks to how challenging <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of people that are listening to this that are in recovery will be saying, yeah, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so what implications do you think that this may have for treatment? So, um, you know, perhaps for individuals who are, again, you know, working hard towards recovery and are recovered in other aspects of their eating disorder, 
but are still engaging in food restriction, perhaps adopting more habit reversal training could be helpful. I mean, this isn't really something that is, um, you know, manualized or, or has been really done in uh, patients with eating disorders, but for the patients with, um, you know, like OCD or, or um, tick disorders or other sort of disorders that involve um, engaging in adverse behaviors. This has been shown to be helpful and um, sometimes it even involves interventions like keeping a tracker or they even have smartphone apps, I think, um, for how, to helping people to, again, be more conscious and aware of how many times they're engaging in the behavior. And then they can work towards extinguishing it. So almost treating it like a behavioral intervention. And so, um, and that's something, you know, people can even do, even if they're not seeing a therapist or a counselor, they can sort of just do even on their own. Absolutely. And I think that's uh, another call for peer support as well, because sort of those lower level, those lower level support systems where, you know, you can't see a therapist or your counselor every day and check in on these habits every day, but they do need um, addressing in real time. So actually, like, you know, sort of reducing that feedback loop so that as soon as you're moving into habitual behavior, that it can be addressed rather than waiting till the end of the week where you have one hour with your therapist and trying to do it all then. I think the lower level um, support models that can be more frequent can um, accompany treatment. And Certainly. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually, hopefully developing, having the, the competing behavior eventually become a habit in and of itself. And then it's sort of something that you don't really have to think about because it's just a habit that you, you know, eat however often your your team has you know said that you're supposed to eat things like that mm -hmm. and I have found uh, I do think that those those habits do form pretty quickly as well once I was in a recovery mindset I was able to use my proclivity to forming habits turn it around so that now I decided that I would never eat less than a day before and to turn that into a habit and, and switch it um, it does not to say it was easy, but that's why I think all of this is really beneficial for helping guide treatment to the individual so that people who realize that they do have a quite strong OCD tendencies or habitual tendencies can sort of work out, oh, maybe this is a behavioral change thing and I don't need to sit in a shrink's office for as long and talk about the underlying problems. I just need to address the behaviors. Um, and it's especially validating for patients who have been in treatment for a long time and sort of know the this underlying cognitive and emotional, um, you know, components of their eating disorder. And they already have all the psychoeducation that they need. And really, they're just wanting to work on the behavior. Yes, because uh, it's just so devastating for some adults that have had an eating disorder for 20 years or and been in treatment for 20 years been in psychotherapy for 20 years and those things may have helped and given them tools and you know sort of help them accomplish certain things but then they still are trapped in these behaviors that haven't necessarily improved despite all of the positive tools that they've been given and i think it makes people feel very hopeless right you know they might think oh you know i it seems like the treatment has ended and I've made all these, all this progress, but you know, these, these behaviors remain and it sort of might send, might make people feel like, well, maybe this is just how my life is going to be now. And I'll sort of keep engaging in these behaviors, but 
it, maybe I should be happy because it's less frequent than when I started treatment. But really, you know, everyone can achieve full full recovery. And, and we actually have a, a, a paper from our team that, that we recently published where we followed um, almost 250 women over the course of 22 years. And we actually found that two thirds of them achieved full recovery. And so that's the paper I often like to cite because it, it is true. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it is not only possible, but the paper shows that it, it is probable. I mean, two thirds is over half the achieved full recovery. So um, it's sort of something that, you know, everyone can, everyone can achieve. Yeah. And that's, such a, that's a very good message. Thank you for saying that. Um, on this habit forming bit, like something I often wonder with, Say somebody goes away to um, residential treatment or inpatient treatment, which can be life-saving for some people if somebody's drastically underweight or medically compromised and very needed. Um, a lot of people seem to go and get weight restored and then as soon as they're home again, re-engage in behaviours. So do you think that the environment can have an effect on how a person sort of, you know, they may do well in recovery in one environment and then return to a previous environment where maybe habits were formed initially and reverse. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about because, you know, the habit literature would suggest that there are cues in the environment that you perhaps are um, not in your realm of consciousness that you're sort of picking up on subconsciously that then prompt you to engage in whatever habit it is that you have. Um, and habits can be, you know, anything, but obviously because um, if they're in a residential program, then perhaps like you're saying, the environment is different. And then when they're coming back into the environment that initially prompted the habit formation, perhaps then they would sort of, their habits would sort of re uh, resurface and and we do know that that can happen so the best place to to practice habit extinction is in you know the environment that you that is sort of the the problem i guess or the the reason why the behavior is being maintained Mm -hmm. which is another reason why family-based treatment i think can be so wonderful Uh, at any age let's say not just for children at any age because it's it's in the home it's food habits being addressed, behavior habits being addressed, movement habits being addressed in the environment when that person has to sustain recovery in. So one thing, I'm looking at the study right here and I'm looking at the abstract and this last line reads, because current models of anorexia nervosa characterize food restriction as purposeful, further research is needed to better understand habitual restriction in anorexia. Can you talk about characterize food restriction as purposeful so would that be the what you were saying before that sort of that's the assumption that if somebody is not eating enough they're doing it because they want to lose weight or because of any one particular reason in the dsm one of the criteria for anorexia nervosa is that they um aren't eating enough to to basically maintain a healthy weight and so not explicit but the assumption is that you know that, that, that this is something that they're they're doing um sort of on purpose not not that they have anorexia nervosa on purpose but that they are knowingly engaging in in food restriction on purpose um 
And so, you know, what we are finding and what we were talking about before is that, you know, perhaps actually there is a component and it may vary for some, um, for some, it may be more of a habit than others, but that there is this component that it, it might be a little bit more of a habit than, than current models of understanding the way that anorexia nervosa is maintained sort of, um, gives credit to. I think that's fabulous. And I think it's very important because I think it can be quite frustrating to be on the other side and being told that, oh, you're doing this for a reason. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not, you know, this isn't, I'm not doing, I'm not restricting food for any reason as such. It's just very scary for me not to. (laughs) And not only is it um, scary for you not to, and it's sort of, it's not even maybe something that you're thinking about it. So it's not so much that it's something that is scary for you not to. And yes, it's something yes. that it's not even um, perhaps even on your radar is something that you're doing. Yes. And, and you know, I think that mm-hmm. recovery, re- I mean, really recovery takes so much every day, every hour focus on mm-hmm. make sure I'm eating. Don't let it slip. Don't let the behaviors creep back in. It, it really is. Sort of feels like 24 seven on, on, on recovery effort to even make, small gains in food intake and um, weight gain as well. And, you know, we also tend to have to sustain that for months, if not mm-hmm. years, in order to going that way. And it's, it is a huge effort. It takes so much energy to go against all of those. It's just so much easier to, oh, I'll eat more tomorrow. I'll, I'll think about it tomorrow. I'll do better tomorrow, which is, I think, one of the things that gets so many people with anorexia just caught and then before they know it 20 years later you're 41 and are still stuck in the illness certainly and you know and this is another reason why it would be great to develop a habit reversal um training or technique for for these patients to be able to say you know we did this in a treatment study and and hey here's about when you might expect to see the habit sort of stop or at least reduce frequency and just to give patients sort of the sense of, okay, um, you know, this isn't something that I'm going to just do forever. And, and Hey, if I can just hang in a little longer and, um, take up a little bit more of my brain space, then, then eventually this new way of eating will become a habit. And it's something that I won't have to think about 24 um, seven. Yeah. And it does happen. It does right. work. It, it does happen. It's, um, which I would have never, I never expected it to. I just, when you, when you're in it, it's just like, is it going to be this hard forever? And it feels like forever, but then sort of one day you notice, Hey, that wasn't really difficult for me to eat um, that much. And I didn't think about it as much. It wasn't always on my mind. And that's a very wonderful thing. The problem is getting people there though, because it does take a while and they have to get through all the hard stuff first. So lots of support. Exactly. I mean, and I think that people with not just eating disorders, I mean, if you think about recovery from substances and alcohol, I mean, it is something that you have to think about all the time. And um, it's sort of everyone who has recovered will say, you know, it's worth it and it does get easier. But when you're sort of in the throes of the disorder, it can be really challenging to to believe that it will get better and it won't be something that you have to think about 24-7. And a big thank you to Catherine Coniglio for taking the time to talk to me about that. Now, 
One thing I don't want you to come away from this podcast thinking is that we're saying that anorexia nervosa is nothing more than bad habits. That's not what we're saying at all. We're just saying that some of the behaviours aren't as intentional, therefore they may be governed more by um, classical conditioning than operant conditioning, than might have been previously thought. And so that feels very relevant to me, somebody who had anorexia nervosa for 10 plus years and by the end of it I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. If it had made sense to me at one time, it certainly didn't any longer. I just couldn't stop doing what I was doing, or at least I could. In the end that's what I found, but I didn't think I could. And so that's the difference there. It's taking out the intent or the assumed intent behind the behaviours and just exploring that maybe some of them get uh, more entrenched, not due to us wanting an outcome or even associating doing them with a particular outcome, but maybe a little bit more to do with inability to change, fear of change. There's so much more work to be done here. I just welcome anything that looks at anorexia nervosa a little bit differently than the current model, which puts places blame on patients and places blame on families. I mean, less so now. Those thoughts are changing, the attitudes are changing, but it's still too much. It's gone on for too long. If you enjoy these podcasts, then we do have a Patreon account and any proceeds that we receive go towards ADRA, which is a non-profit organization that I founded which offers meal support for people with eating disorders via video call and it's peer support. So what we spoke about in that podcast, sort of those lower level, less expensive support systems that can help a person change a behavior in the moment, that's where peer support can be really helpful. So actually helping a person at the meal time when they're sitting in their house, trying to eat a meal, trying to eat more than they would usually do, Having somebody there that's encouraging to do that, that has been there themselves and knows what it's like, that's really important. At least I think it's very important in eating disorder recovery. So any proceeds from these podcasts go to ADRA and you are helping a person with anorexia nervosa get the support that they need to recover. Thank you for listening. Until next time, cheerio.